continue our journey through the Bible this year, we are, we're finally getting to the, the New Testament. In Matthew 1, we have the, the first record of the birth of Jesus. And what we need to remember as we enter into the New Testament is that every, every story, uh, every analogy, every picture in the Old Testament points to Jesus points to the promise of Jesus that he would fulfill. He is, he is the faithful husband in the book of Hosea who refuses to give up on his wife even though she continues to uh, re reject him and commit adultery on him over and over and over. He's the, the suffering servant in Isaiah who was wounded for our transgressions and is bruised for our iniquities. He's the faithful shepherd king like David who defeated the giant of death and hell as we just stood on the sidelines watching, doing nothing. He's the kinsman redeemer of Ruth who paid the ransom to redeem us and restore us to God the Father. He's the Passover lamb whose blood was applied to save us from the judgment of God. He's the despised brother like Joseph who transformed his betrayal into salvation for his entire family. He's the miraculous son of Abraham that provided himself as the sacrifice on the altar. He's the ark which, the, which we flee to for shelter from God's judgment. He's the conquering descendant promised to Adam and Eve that would crush the enemy under his feet. See, all of these pictures and all of these stories that we looked at for the last six months in the Old Testament and every story we skipped over, they all point to Jesus. They all show us the, how Jesus is going to come and what he's going to come for. So every promise, every prophecy, everything mentioned in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus when he came to earth. Now, the Jews in Jesus' day, they knew these stories. They had these pictures. You know, for 400 years, God had been silent uh, after the book of Malachi. It was 400 years of silence, and, and G uh, Jerusalem now has come under Roman uh, occupation. They've rebuilt the temple. Even the temple they built in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, where we saw last week, it wasn't as grand as it had been. King Herod came in and built the temple even grander than they had thought. And so the temple's being reestablished. It's this beautiful place of worship. It's got the, 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 the altar and the the in all these places for them to worship God. It's got the, the, the Holy of Holies in there. Jerusalem's been rebuilt and reestablished and people are living there, but they're living under Roman occupation. But the Romans believed in religious freedom. So they allowed the Jews to worship how they wanted to worship and, and learn what they wanted to learn. And so the Jewish religion was very active and very strong. People were still, you know, even in this time, uh, Jewish boys would have to memorize the first five books of the Bible by the time they were at the age of 12. They knew the scripture. They knew what the Bible said. They knew the promises of God in the Old Testament and the pictures of the Messiah that they were waiting for. But even though they knew all these things, they had all these prophecies, most people missed Jesus when he came. Even the disciples who gave up their livelihoods, gave up their lives to follow Jesus for three years, 
They missed who he truly was and what he truly came to do while he was on earth. And it's almost understandable to, to know why they missed it because the way that Jesus came was so unusual, was so unexpected that they didn't recognize him even when he fulfilled all the prophecies and all the, the symbols that performed all the miracles. That's why that the way, of, the way that the book of Matthew opens is so unique and so important. The first half of the first chapter of Matthew, it's really the resume of Jesus. It is showing us who he is, why he came the way he did, and what he's going to do. It shows us that he is the only one who is uniquely qualified to be our Savior. Now, most of us, when we're reading through the Bible or reading Scripture, we kind of just plow through uh, the first part of Matthew chapter 1 and really don't understand what the Bible is trying to teach us. So this, this morning, we're going to read the first 17 verses in the book of Matthew, and we're going to show really what God is trying to tell us in these verses. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse number 1, says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. And Judah begat Phares and Zerah of Tamar, and Phares begat Eshram, and Eshram begat Aram, and Aram begat Amenadab, and Amenadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of, of Rechab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed, Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias, and Solomon begat Roham and Roabam and Roabam begot Aba and Aba begot Asa and Asa begot Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat begot Joram and Joram begot Ozias and Ozias begot Jotham and Jotham begot Achaz and Achaz begot Ezekias and Ezekias begot Manassas and Manassas begot Ammon and Ammon begot Josias and Josias begot Jehonakaz and his brother and about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jehoiakaz begot Shethadel, and Shethadel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot, Abit, begot Abidab, and Abidab begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Sadok, and Sadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eluad, and Eluad begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Manathan, and Manathan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away unto Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now I know I just read that real fast and one of the reasons I did was because I don't know how to pronounce all the names so I figured if I ran through it real quick you wouldn't catch I was mis making mistakes. And uh, you can't pronounce them either. So whatever. Uh, but we, we start reading this and really... The beginning of it, we understand. You know, we got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we got the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we get to David and some, some, some stuff after David. And then after we get out of Babylon, we got some people, we don't even know who they are. And then we get to Joseph and Mary and Jesus. And this is really, it is the genealogy of Christ. And in the Bible, and in the Bible times, genealogies were vitally important. 
They were, they were, they were, they told people who you were, where you came from, and what you would plan on doing. How many of y'all have ever done any of those ge- geology uh, studies or generational studies from like 23andMe or, or uh, that, the tree one? What's the tree one? Ancestry. How many of y'all have done that? You have sit in your DNA. Y'all crazy. You know that's how they call it the BTK? I'm not sitting in my DNA. But anyway, a lot of people are in that. They, they, they look at their genealogies and they can trace their, oh, I'm from this part of the world and I can trace my genealogy to this thing. And people can really get into genealogies and who they're related to and who they're associated with. And oh, my great, 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 great granddaddy was George Washington. Isn't that awesome? And, you know, no, it doesn't matter anymore. No one cares that your great, 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 whatever was George Washington because you ain't president. But we, we like to kind of look at our genealogy and say, man, that's, that's awesome about these people I came from. My last name is Minix. There is a family of Minixes in Roanoke, Virginia. I am not related to them. They are related to a, a former Judge Minix, very high up in the community and did a lot for the community of, of Salem and Roanoke and was very prominent. And so they're, they're very, you know, kind of prominent, proud people to be called Minixes. My Minixes were on the other side of the law. They were the criminals who stood in front of this guy. So people say, oh, are you related to the, no, I'm, I'm not that family. My family's got a little, you know, people hanging in my family tree are usually hung because they stole something. And so I'm not proud of my family tree. Some people are. I've not really traced mine back very far. But in Bible times, your family tree, your genealogy was important. It let people know really how important you were. Let people know who you came from. And if they could tell who you came from, they could almost predict where you were going to go and what you were going to do with your life. And this genealogy is key to understanding who Jesus really is and why he had to come in the unexpected way that he did. Look back at verse number one. It says, this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, right off the bat, Matthew, even though he's going to go through the genealogy and show how Abraham got to David, got to Jesus, he's letting you know right off the bat that this, this genealogy of this person is an important figure in Jewish history. Because his genealogy, his lineage starts way back at Abraham. It includes David. And so this is an important Person. And he's, he's letting us know that the rest of the gospel is going to prove that Jesus is who he says he is and that his genealogy is true. And this, this genealogy, it's, it's organized in a unique, unique pattern. Look back at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away of Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon to Christ are 14 generations. So there are three sets of 14. Now, 14, of course, is 7 plus 7. We all understand that, right? 7 plus 7 equals 14. How many of y'all believe that? Okay, not enough hands are up there. I'm real scared about that. We all know 7 plus 7 equals 14. 7 is important in Scripture. It's, a, it's the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. God rested on the seventh day 
because everything he had done was perfect. Numbers are vital, you know, number six is the, 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 uh, anyway, numbers are important in scripture. Seven is perfection. So seven plus seven is really perfect, right? That's like super duper perfect. And so what God is showing us here, what Matthew is showing us here is that this, this organization of the genealogy of Jesus and how, how God moved throughout the history of the world to get Jesus to this point, everything was superimposed by God's perfection and God's perfect will. See, Matthew's showing us here and God's showing us that nothing that happened throughout the entire history of the world to get to Jesus was random. It was all part of God's perfect plan. Everything that happened throughout history, the history of the world was shaped perfectly around Christ. That brings us to our first point that this genealogy shows us. Number one, it shows us that Jesus is the center of history. When Matthew wrote this genealogy, none of the major players in the world at the time were paying attention to Jesus or his family. They're under Roman rule. They do have the, the Levitical priests and the Pharisees kind of religiously ruling over the, the nation of Israel, but they're under Roman rule and they've got kings and generals and, and governors and all kinds of powerful political figures. And when Jesus was born, none of them knew about it. None of them cared about it. Jesus was born to an obscure family in a small Middle Eastern town, and no one in Rome, no one in Athens took notice of his birth. And in fact, when Jesus died, very few people outside of Israel had ever even heard of him. See, but Matthew shows us that despite what it looks like on the surface, God is guiding history according to his perfect plan. See, the powers of the world, those that think they are in control, the ones that think they control everything, they're really controlled by God. They're, control, they're in control of nothing but a sovereign, almighty, all-powerful God controls everything that has ever happened and ever will happen to fulfill his perfect will. You know, in the time of Jesus' birth, it looked like the Roman Empire was in control of everything. Matthew tells us that God is in control of everything, and Jesus is right out at the center of all of it. See, everything that Rome was doing, everything that every empire before Rome and since Rome has done, but everything that they were doing was leading up to this moment. You know, let me show you. You know, everyone knows the story of Mary and Joseph and the, the journey to Bethlehem from Luke. You know, because the entire world was taxed. And it wasn't the whole world. It was the whole Roman Empire. But because the whole Roman Empire was taxed, Mary and Joseph, when Mary was great with child, had to travel 90 miles to Bethlehem to take part in the census and to pay their taxes. But that's not why they had to go there. They had to go there because the Bible had prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. 
So God used the Roman Empire to tax their entire empire so that two people would have to go back to Bethlehem 90 miles so that the prophecy could be fulfilled. It wasn't random happenstance. God worked out the history of the world to fulfill his perfect will. And Luke, Luke tells us about some random event. This was God's plan to have the Messiah be born where it had been prophesied. You know, this shows us that God is behind everything, including the birth of Christ. You know, on the surface, it looks like Rome's in charge. Man, Joseph, you have to go to Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus passed a, a decree that everyone had to return to their hometown to to take part in the census and pay their taxes for that, that year. And so, Joseph, because Caesar said so, you have to take your pregnant, pregnant fiancé and travel to Bethlehem to pay your taxes. But that's not what was happening. Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because that's where Jesus was prophesied to be born. God just used Caesar to get it done. God just used a Roman emperor to make sure his perfect will was fulfilled. See, the book of Proverbs says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. See, God turns the hearts of those people who think they're in charge to fulfill his will in the world and bring about his perfect plan. See, that's why I don't get too concerned or too upset about elections. Elections are important. Voting is, I'm not saying, well, you know, God's in control, so don't vote. No, you need to vote and, you know, be, be informed about who you're going to vote for and why you're going to vote for them and the issues at hand. And yeah, we should vote our conscience and vote the Bible. But when, when God puts someone in control that we don't like, that's not for us to say, oh man, the whole thing's going. No, no matter who's in the Oval Office, no matter who's in the, the Congress or the Senate, God has their heart in his hand and he uses them for his will, for his purpose. Everything that's happened throughout all of history happens because God is in control and everything he does, whether it's major events of the, of the world or the details of your life, God is weaving all of history all of humanity to fulfill his purpose and his plan of Jesus's kingdom reigning over all the earth. You know, currently our world's in a pretty big mess. We're just coming out of a global pandemic. We've had one of the most divisive elections in U.S. history. Can we recognize that all of that is happening? We may not know why or what God is doing, but all of it is happening because God is orchestrating it for his perfect plan. The hand of God is in everything that happens, no matter where it happens in the world. What about in your, your own life? What if you saw everything that happened in your life, the promotions, the raises, the good news, the sickness, the loss, the pain. What if you looked at your life and said, God, I may not understand what you're doing. I may not like what you're doing, but I understand that you are orchestrating everything in my life for your glory, for my good, and for your perfect plan. 
What if you realize that God had a purpose for all the pain and the suffering that you endured in this life? Look, if God can direct empires and presidents and nations for his will, he can work in your life to fulfill his will. You know, three years ago, I've been getting the notifications. You know, every, you know I get that, uh, the, the, my memories on Facebook. I've been getting them lately. And three years ago, Parker uh, broke his leg severely. We were at Connor's birthday party, and he was, he was you know, at a roller skating rink. And, I'm, I'm, you know, we, we're there at this roller skating rink, and I'm trying to pay for kids so they can get their stuff and do whatever. And I'm not really paying attention. And somebody comes over and says, hey, uh, Parker fell. I'm like, Parker's a klutz. He's fine. I'm like, no, he, he's really hurt. So I go over there and he's like, I think I hurt my leg. And so we, we put him on a chair and we take him out to the car. Now, Parker and Connor are drama queens. All right. He's here. He knows it. He's a drama queen. He gets a, a, a splinter and it's, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Lexi's not. You can cut off Lexi's arm and she's like, eh, I'm fine. But Parker and Connor are drama queens. So Parker, he's, he's, oh, my leg hurts so bad. And I'm picking on him. I'm teasing him. I'm like, oh, it's not so bad. You just spray and drink. And I'm making fun of him. And we, we get to the hospital. I'm like, oh, he thinks he hurt his leg. And the doctor takes off his sock. And the doctor says, oh, cuss word. And when the doctor cusses, I'm like, oh, maybe this is serious. Maybe I should be nicer to him. And they're like, we got to get him to the hospital and get him some morphine. And it was, it was a severe break. He broke his tibia and his fibia and just broke his ankle. Had to have uh, three surgeries to end up repairing. And it was, a, it was a major break and a major, this is not the answer to question, answer time, major uh, surgery. In all of that, we found out that he has high blood pressure. Now, my grandmother... Uh, died of a stroke when she was 32 years old. So high blood pressure at a young age, just it's genetic. I've, had, I've been on high blood pressure for years just because my blood pressure shot up so high. I almost had a stroke when I was, I was, I mean, we had just started the church. Now I blame y'all, but still it's also genetics. And Parker got it too. He just genetically has high blood pressure and his blood pressure was dangerously high and we never would have known it if he hadn't broke his leg, if he hadn't snapped his leg so bad that he had to have surgery where the anesthesiologist says his blood pressure is dangerously high, even when he's sedated, something's going on. We never would have known. He'd have gone to camp, played hard, maybe had a heart attack. We don't know. Say, what was that? That was God orchestrating the pain of him breaking his leg severely so that we could find out a problem that was in his life that we could to take care of and fix. God worked it out for his glory and for our good. See, maybe you're not getting the job that you want. Maybe that's God working in your life to fulfill his will for his kingdom and your life. See, the pain that you're experiencing in your life, it gives you the ability to relate to people who have the same situation so that you can share Jesus with them. A sign of spiritual maturity is when you can view everything in your life, the blessings and the heartache, through the lens of how God is going to use it to help fulfill his, the mission of Jesus. 
See, God, everything that goes on in life, the history of the world, the history of your life is written by God with Jesus at the center. But here's the second thing we want to notice. Number two, God works in the chaos of life. See, this, this genealogy is, is unusual for a couple purposes because typically in the genealogies of people, they only list the fathers. They never list the mothers. Say, why? I'm not saying this is right. Don't blame me. It's 2021. We're all woke. But in this period, in this time period, in this culture, women didn't matter. Not me, their culture, okay? So I'm not saying women don't matter. I love women. I think they're great. Women's, yeah, we could get women's rights all the time, all right? But here, women weren't important. Women were property. They were, they were used to have babies, to have sons for the father's line to carry on. So genealogy is never mentioned to women because women, they weren't important. But here, in this genealogy, we have a lot of women listed. So Matthew, he lists some women in the line of Jesus, which is excessive and unnecessary. So look at verse number three. <clears throat> Let me turn back there. Verse number three, it says, uh, And Judas, that's Judah, begat Phares and Zerah of Thamar, that's Tamar, and Phares begot Eshram and Esram of Aram. So in this, the, the only person who is essential in that genealogy was Judah. Should say Judah begat Phares, but it doesn't say that. It says Judah begot Phares of Tamar. Now Tamar, she wasn't needed in the genealogy, especially if you know the story of Judah and Tamar. It's a pretty bad story. It's found in Genesis chapter 38. Now Judah, he was one of the sons of Jacob. He was the leader of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Judah had three sons. His oldest son married a girl named Tamar. The Bible says that he did evil in the sight of God, so God killed him. In this culture, the oldest son, if, if he died, married before he had children, it was the responsibility of the next oldest son to marry his widow, have children with her, so his sons, his older brother's name would continue. Now, genetically, that's not how it worked, but that's what they did in the culture. So that's what happens. Tamar marries the next son, which is Onan. Onan marries Tamar, but we don't, we don't know why. But he, he didn't want to. Maybe he wanted his own wife. Maybe he had somebody else he wanted, was interested in, whatever. Maybe he hated her. We don't know. But Onan marries her, but refuses to have children with her. So God kills him. So now Judah's down from three sons to one son. Tamar has married his two oldest sons. They've both died. He has one son left. And he's looking at Tamar thinking, she's the common denominator. She's married both my boys, and both my boys are dead. I don't want to risk it with the third son. So he tells Tamar, hey, my youngest son, he's too young. You know, he's not old enough to marry yet. Why don't you go home and wait for him to get, get old enough, and then you can come back and marry him. So that's what she does. Well, she, a couple years go by, and she hears that Judah has no intention of letting her marry his youngest son. He has no intention of of following through with his vow to her. But she also hears he, he's coming up 
the way she lives to take some herds and take some sheep up. So she plots a, she create, comes up with a plan. She dresses like a prostitute and waits in this village that Judah's going to go through in a place she knows he's going to see her. So Judah's coming through. He sees Tamar dressed as a prostitute, does not recognize her as Tamar, but Judah, that's why I'm not putting, I'm not blaming Tamar here. Judah hires Tamar as a prostitute. And we all know what he hires her for. So he hires her to have sex with her. He tells her, I don't have any cash on me. I'll send you your payment back later. And she goes, that's fine, but I need to keep something for collateral. So she takes his ring, his bracelet, and his staff. Says, I'll keep these for collateral. When you bring back the payment, you can have it back. He says, fine. He goes about his way. He sends someone else back to pay her, but she's gone. So he thinks, oh, well, no big deal. She's got my ring, my bracelet, my, my staff, no big deal. She can keep it. Three months go by. He hears that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. He's going to stone her because that's what he could do. He could have her stoned to death. So he has her dragged out to be stoned to death. But before they can stone her, she says, wait a minute, go tell Judah that the man who got me pregnant is the owner of these things and gives the bracelet, the ring and the staff. So Judah, somebody comes to you and says, look, she's saying that, you know, the baby daddy owns this stuff. If you want to get to him, get, you know, this is how you get to him. And Judah looks at him, he's like, oh, that's my ring. It's my bracelet. It's my staff. She was more righteous than I was because she was just trying to keep the lineage of her husband going. So he, he doesn't have her stoned. He, he doesn't marry her or anything. He just lets her you know, live her life. But she raises these two, these two sons through Judah. So that's a pretty messed up story. I mean, you think your family was bad. This woman had to dress up like a prostitute to trick her father-in-law to get her pregnant. That's a Jerry Springer show all over the place. And that's in the line of Jesus Christ. That story. You know, how many of y'all, when you're sitting around at family reunions, like, hey, let me tell you the story about great granddad, how he, you know, he did something wrong and he you know, hired a prostitute who was really his daughter-in-law. Let me tell you, we're not telling that story at Christmas. But that's a story in the line of Jesus Christ. So God, this was all part of God's plan. See, he, God, works in the chaos of your life to fulfill his perfect plan for our life and for his kingdom. See, a lot of us have, have serious pain in our life right now. Maybe someone has hurt you, someone has neglected you, someone has abused you, but you're, you're suffering serious pain. And look, let me tell you this, God is not happy that you're hurting. God is a good father. Just like me, if someone hurts my kids, I am angry about it. I am hurt when they're hurt. You know, someone hurts them and I can retaliate, I'm gonna, but someone hurts them, maybe they get, you know, they, they have their feelings hurt or they get picked or they lose a job or something they, they really wanted. And when they hurt, I hurt for them. When you hurt, God hurts with you. But God has an overriding purpose in your pain. He uses it for his perfect plan with Jesus at the center of everything.
Now, we can't see what is happening. We can't see what God is doing. But we know that God is working all things out for our good and for his glory. God works everything, even in the chaos of our life. And the third thing we want to look at this morning about what this lineage tells us is number three. Jesus came for the forgotten. Another thing we notice about this genealogy is how many of the people that are listed have embarrassing moments in their life or horrible sins in their life or how many of them aren't even Jewish? They're not even Israelites. You know, Matthew 4, he mentions four specific women. And every single one of them have a shady past or have something in their life that we would look at as, as pretty terrible. We're going to talk about Tamar and her tricking her father-in-law to have sex with her so she could get pregnant. But look at verse number 5. And Salmon begot Boaz of Rahab. Rahab there is Rahab. Anybody know what Rahab's last name was? Rahab the harlot. You know what a harlot is? A harlot's a prostitute. We know the story of Rahab. It's in Joshua. Joshua is about to cross over the promised land, and so he sends in some spies to spy out Jericho. And while they spy out Jericho, they are, they are discovered by Rahab the prostitute. She hides them, protects them, takes care of them, and says just, hey, when you come through, Talk to your God and spare me. And so they come through, they destroy Jericho, but Rahab and her family are spared. And Rahab the harlot marries an Israelite man and has children that eventually come down to the line to Jesus Christ. So here she, she's, she's not only a woman with a really bad past, she's not even an Israelite. She's a Gentile, but she's in the line of Jesus. Then, of course, uh, we see Ruth. Again, look at verse number, uh, number five. And Salmon begot Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed of Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse. Now, we've looked at Ruth. We all know Ruth. She's a Moabite woman. The Moabites were a forbidden people for the Israelites. They were, they were the result of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. While Israel's in the wilderness, the Moabites were constantly... It's tempting the Israel to fall into sin, and they were constant thorn in their flesh, not attacking them, but they would draw them out into horrible sexual sin. So God said, no Israelite can ever have anything to do with any Moabite. And here's Ruth, a Moabite. She's a widow. She's poor. She's forbidden to be even in Israel, but she's in the line of Jesus Christ. She's a grandmother of King David. She is right there in Jesus' Jesus's lineage. But then look at verse number 6. And Jesse begat David the king, and David begat uh, Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Now the worth of wife of Uriah we all know is Bathsheba. She is the one who committed adultery with King David. Now I don't blame her. She was a, again, she was a woman in a culture where women were just property and when the king says, you're coming with me, she could either obey or die. So I'm not blaming Bathsheba. Bathsheba here is an innocent victim, all right? But the situation with Bathsheba is pretty shameful. 
David commits adultery. David kills her husband to cover it up. David, there's this huge sin around the story of David and Bathsheba, but she brought forth Solomon and eventually the son of God himself, Jesus Christ. He's right there in the lineage of David. So in this time, the genealogy was like your resume. Now look, when you write a resume for a job, you only show the good stuff you do, right? You You don't mention the stupid things you do. Oh, well, I showed up to work, you know, late five days a week, and I forgot, messed up. You know, the, uh, there's a story uh, out of Disney where Pixar, uh, I think they were doing Toy Story, and one, one animator, like, erased all of Toy Story off the mainframe and off everything. They just, luckily, someone had taken a copy home on a DVD, y'all remember DVD drives or zip or floppy disk? Luckily, they had taken it home on, a, on an, an external drive, but one guy erased all of Toy Story. You know, he's putting his resume in at DreamWorks, he ain't saying, yeah, I'm the guy that erased Toy Story and almost ruined the whole franchise. He's not telling that. You tell the good things you did. And that's the same way with genealogies. A lot of genealogies, even Jesus' genealogy, we're not going to get into it, but they missed a lot of people because a lot of people were, were pretty embarrassing. And you would skip the embarrassing people because you wanted to put your best foot forward. So, but in this In this genealogy, we have a woman that acted like a prostitute, an actual prostitute who was also a Gentile, a forbidden widow, and an adulterous woman. His resume is filled with moral failures, mess-ups, broken, weak, and forgotten people. In this resume, you have people who are outside the circle of power. You have moral outsiders like Judah, who hired a prostitute, like David, who committed adultery and murder to cover up his sin. You have ethnic outsiders like Rahab. You have social outsiders like Ruth. And these people had no business being related to a king. And that's the message that God is giving us. Jesus came to include everyone. Me, you, the broken, the forgotten, the rejected. Those, these names are in the list of Jesus so that you can know that your name can be included in his family too. See, if Jesus would have come as a conquering king, As Israel had expected, we'd have all been crushed because we're Gentiles outside of the Jewish community. If he'd have come as a judge to repay evil and sin, we would have had no hope. But he came through a line of broken, sinful people with Gentile blood in his veins to identify with us and to save us from our sins. He shared our humanity. He took our sins and our sorrows as our own. He faced every temptation that we ever faced and he conquered every single one of them. He did what we could never do as the perfect God-man. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died for our sins and rose again to redeem us to God the Father. That means a couple things for us. Number one, no matter what your personal history is, God can redeem it for his perfect will. Your past may be filled with brokenness and mistakes. 
this genealogy shows us that Jesus works in all of that to redeem us. He specializes in the broken, the weak, the forgotten, the rejected, and he can save and use anyone. The second thing it shows us is that as a church, our message should be for the forgotten. See, I don't want New Grace to be a church that puts on a better show and so we attract a bunch of bored Christians. I want New Grace to be a church that goes to the broken, the forgotten, the rejected, the outsider, and brings them in. We should want to be a church that preaches Christ to those that society, especially Christian culture, has overlooked or rejected. The immigrant, the prostitute, the drug addict, the abused, the homeless, the poor, the homosexual that every church rejects. We should be a type of people that say, God, you came for them. You died for them. You want the blood of Jesus Christ to be paid for their sins as well. And so we are going to go to them to try to give them the gospel. Because that's the only thing that's going to help them. You know, a lot of times we can get on our our soapboxes and get on our political ideals and kind of miss what God's doing. Now, look, I know the immigration situation in our country is a mess. I don't have the answers. You don't have the answers. Nobody's got the answers. It's a mess. And I know we can look at refugees coming to our country and get upset and say, why are we allowing these people in? And why is, why is our country doing this? And stand up on Facebook and, and rail against it. But let me think about this. The people who are coming in as refugees, I'm not talking about the people coming in from Mexico and all that. People who are coming in as refugees fleeing other countries. They are fleeing nations and areas of the world where if you were to go there and preach the gospel of Jesus, you would be killed. But God is taking them from there and bringing them to us where we have the freedom to preach the gospel to them. It's not an immigrant crisis. It's a gospel opportunity for us to get to people that we're never going to have a chance to get to at all. That is God working it out so the outsider can receive the gospel. And who knows, maybe one of them get, receives the gospel, they get saved, they go back to their home nation and they preach the gospel there because we sure can't. And thousands get saved because we looked at an opportunity and said, God... This is an opportunity that you have sent our way to go to the outsider, to go to the people everyone rejects and, and, and spits on and gets. We're going to go to them and give them the gospel. That's why I love the community closet so much. You know, April, she, she's been, these, these community things she's been working with, one of them was called TAS or something, I don't know what it's called. But they, they help people who are coming out of drug addiction or homelessness get up on their feet. And so they, a couple of them came. We were to give them some clothes, some appliances, some coffee maker and stuff, and love on them and give them tracks. One of them was supposed to be here today. Now, she called last night, so something come up. She couldn't make it. We're going to keep going to her and keep asking her, hey, you want to come to church? You want to come? And look, she's the type that God wants us to love on because he died for them too. You know, it's, it's Pride Month, and I know that can, I'm not going to get into that, but it's Pride Month. You can look at that as two things. You can get on Facebook. As I, I've seen some of my friends, none of you. So if you're like, why are you talking to me? I'm not talking to you. I haven't seen you do it. If you have, I'm not talking about you. 
But you can get on Facebook and say, you know, God gave us a rainbow as a promise for God's covenant. You can get on there and say, you know, I want to celebrate straight pride. You can do that. You know how many people have gotten saved because of posts like that? None. I'm not saying get on Facebook and proclaim this is a great lifestyle and God loves. God does love them. But if we're bashing them, they're never going to come in. Say, what, what should I do? Just love people. Just treat people like you want to be treated. And if you happen to come across someone who may be homosexual, you know what you should do? Invite them to church. Invite them. Why? Because they need the gospel. Just like you did. Just like I did. We should be reaching out to them and sharing the love of Christ with them because that's the only thing they need. And look, I'm, if, that, if that bothers you, you haven't understood the gospel. I'm sorry, if you're like, I can't believe he's talking. If that upsets you or ruffles your feathers or you don't like it, you haven't really understood the true scope of the gospel. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Amen. Be not deceived, nor fornic neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor executioners, extortioners, I'm sorry, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now look, we like to read that and we, we, we focus on the word effeminate and the abuse of themselves of mankind. The word effeminate in the original Greek refers to children who were sex slaves. Can we agree it's not their fault? Can we all, it's not their fault. They were taken into slavery and taken into sexual trafficking. It's not their fault. Then the abuses themselves with mankind, that's the word that in other translation is translated as homosexual. There's really no word in the Hebrew, in the Greek language. That's kind of a made up word from Paul, but, is that we, but it means a man who lies with a man. So we can look at it and say, man, yeah, God says right there, homosexuals aren't gonna make it in the kingdom of heaven. He also said liars and drunkards and, you know, people who are just idolaters or adulterers. He named all kinds of people that some of us are as well. Well, I'm not homosexual. You ever lied? Paul said it right there. But here's what he says in verse number, number 11. And such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified. You know what Paul's saying? Paul's not pointing out this particular sin doesn't go to heaven. Paul's pointing out, you were all sinners, but you got saved. You got washed and praise God you did. So don't stand and say, I'm not like them, so I'm going to back. No, say, look, I was just as bad as it. I was headed to the same hell as they were. But I accepted the blood of Jesus Christ as payment for my sin. And because of that and that only, I get to go to heaven. And as a believer who's been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, who's been washed and made whole, it is my duty to go to those who are still on the outside, who are still rejected and put down and forgotten by the society we live in and by our Christian culture to go to them and say, look, I'm no better than you, but I have a great father who loves you and died for you, and he wants to have you as his child as well, all you got to do is accept him as your Savior. And then let God clean him up. See, too often we're like, well, they got to get right with God before they can get saved. We don't believe that, but we kind of practice that. 
Oh, if they get, they got to get everything right and forsake all their sin before they can come into the kingdom of heaven. No, God said, look, I died for you as the way you were. You accept me as your savior, then I'll start cleaning you up. But we as believers have no right to look at someone who's struggling with a sin that we don't have anything to do with or have no idea. Or they're just, they're, we look at them and say, well, I would never. Look at them and say, well, they, they, they have no right. No, we have the duty to go to them. Because Jesus died for them just like he died for us. He died for everyone. And his genealogy shows us that his gospel is open to everyone. All we got to do is accept his gift of salvation. See, no one in Jesus' day, nobody saw this coming. They were looking for a mighty conqueror. They were looking for a judge that would come and end all oppression. But that's not how he came. He could, he, could have, he could not have helped us if he had come that way. If he would have come as a conquering king, we wouldn't have had any help. We wouldn't have had any hope. We'd have been without hope and condemned. He came in an unexpected way to an unexpected lineage for the unexpected people of the world. And if that's how he worked then, is it possible that God does something unexpected in our life? It's for more than what we realize. Your pain doesn't mean you are forgotten or neglected. It means he is working out something better in your life that you haven't seen yet. Think of your life like this genealogy. God is weaving your life with his perfect plan for your life with Jesus at the center. See, this, this genealogy, it's, it's filled with dysfunction, chaos, bad luck, and pain, but God uses it in his perfect plan for us. See, everything in your life before you meet Christ is to reveal him to you. Everything in your life after you meet Christ is to reveal him to others in your life. God is at the center of everything. He's working in your chaos and your pain to show you that he loves you and the forgotten world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.